Let's open up to Isaiah chapter 53, and we're actually going to back up a little bit, Isaiah 52, as we have kind of like slowed down in this section of scripture, and you guys remember I tell you, it's like looking at a picture on your phone and you zoom in, you know, because you want to get a good, a good look at this. This is one of the most important portions of scripture in the Bible. I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but this section some people call it the Mount Everest of Messianic prophecy. So that's a, that's a huge thing. In these 15 verses, that are, there are 42 explicit prophecies regarding Jesus Christ. And some call it, even interestingly enough, they call it the rabbi's torture chamber. Because when a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi who doesn't believe in Jesus, when he looks at these verses, I mean, there's no way to uh, be able to not see that this is in reference to what Jesus has done. And so, you know, I, I got saved in August 20, 1989. You know, God came into my life and he just, man, he just took over my life. I mean, there is no denying what the Lord did. You know, I was raised Catholic, and so I already knew the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I already knew that God was real, and this was God's word, but I didn't have a relationship with him. And so when I accepted Christ to be my Lord and Savior, he came in, and man, he revealed himself to me. He proved himself to me. I, I, I can never, ever, for the rest of my life, ever deny the reality of God and this relationship I have with him. And the cool thing is, is, even you know, since I've been saved, he has done so many amazing miracles. I mean, I have it, you know, for sure, the, this, this revelation of God. He's proven himself to me. But even if I didn't, even if I didn't, you know, have those experiences, we have the word of God. We have these prophecies that are so undeniable. That you have to be, if you're out there and you're these movie stars or these famous people or whatever, these politicians who don't believe in God, who don't follow Jesus, you want to know something? They are, they are completely ignoring the, the, the something that is so clear that God has proven himself to us beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. But they have shut their eyes, they've stopped their ears, they've hardened their hearts because, man, we're going to see what this prophecy right here is so clear. And it's just so amazing. And so here, uh, I've, I've told you guys this, um, you know, is something worth uh, uh, studying in depth. And so we slowed down a little bit. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the last five verses. But before we get there, I just kind of wanted to read them to you guys. And we'll touch on them. And then we'll dive in when we get to verse 8. And so look what it says in verse 13. It says in Isaiah 52, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And so this is in reference to Jesus, and he's going to behave wisely. And as a result of that, he's going to be exalted by the Father. Because when Jesus became a man, he humbled himself to the bottom of the barrel and so behave wisely, doubt prudently. We're going to see one day Jesus crowned as king. And so remember the principle in the Bible. If you humble yourself, God will exalt you. If you take up your cross, then one day you'll get a crown. And so right here he says, behold, my servant shall deal prudently. And so he's going to be exalted and extolled and be very high. 
Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. And so verses 13 through 15, they're kind of like a summary of what we're talking about. So he says, just as many were astonished at you, like they were tripping out on how Israel has been, has suffered so much. You guys know, huh? The, the slaughter of the Jews, uh, Romans came in in 70 AD, you know, Hitler came in, you know, 6 million Jews. They've suffered so much. So right here it says, so just as many were, were astonished at you, so his visage, his appearance, Jesus' appearance, was marred more than any man, or his form more than the sons of men. I mean, you got to understand that this is the, the devil's opportunity to beat down God. You know, and he beat him. And I have a feeling that he probably would have died, you know, with the lashing, with the scourging. But he couldn't die because he had to finish the cross. So you couldn't recognize him as a human being. He was minced meat. That's what it says right there, that his visage was marred. He was beyond recognition. And this is what Jesus has done. He's going to be exalted, but before that, he has to humble himself in that cross. And it says in verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. And so the sprinkling is in reference to the way that, you know, you read the scriptures that talks about how we're sprinkled with the blood of Jesus uh, in the Le- book of Leviticus, it talks many times about them sprinkling them. And what that means is that imagine how, how, how awesome, just to think, you're sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And what is that going to do for you? That's going to cleanse you of your sin. Many of us here have messed up. We've done many things, crazy things, amazing things that people, only you and, and God know about it, right? I could tell you stories about things I've done about things I've said to other people, to, to girls, that whatever used to be my girlfriend, different things. I could tell you horrible things that I've done that I am so ashamed of. But I know one thing, the blood of Jesus washes away my sins. And I want to say that to you because you might be here tonight and you might consider yourself like a second-class citizen because you've done things that are wrong. But understand that when God looks at you, He sees no sin. He sees you perfect because you put your faith in him. And so it says right there, so shall he sprinkle. And an interesting thing is many nations, not just the Jews. I mean, we have Russians here. We have Mexicans here. We got, you know, different nationalities here. Praise God for that. You know, I would love it one day if this sanctuary was filled with people from every country, you know, different colors. I mean, because that's what, the Lord loves the world. And so just in case, and it's unfortunate because the Jews thought that salvation was just for them. Man, if only they would have read their Bible. It says right here, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him for what had not been told them. They shall see and what they had not heard, they shall consider. And so these great men, um, they're going to see things that, that, you know, the new things, new revelations. Um, one person said that that probably means that there is no way for us to be able to articulate adequately uh, what's going to take place when you see Jesus. I mean, I can't put it into words. Huh? There's not anyone who's uh, eloquent enough or articulate enough or, or whatever, schooled enough to be able to say it 
so that you'll be able to say, oh, yeah, I already, already knew that. No, when you see Jesus, oh, my gosh, you're going to be silenced. Kings are going to shut their mouths. Right here it says, when, when they see and they, what they had not heard, they shall then consider. And what that word consider, it means is that you're going to finally understand. And so this is what the summary, you know, one day we'll be there. So then Isaiah then goes in and he kind of starts the whole journey of Jesus' life. But as he begins it in verse 1 of Isaiah 53, where he says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And, and so, you're, you know, you're here tonight. Why are you here? Why are we here? Why do we live? You know, we, we live, this is written, so that you would believe. So that you would believe. And that's the question. Who has believed our report? It's not by works. It's by faith. It's not by your behavior. It's by you putting your faith in Jesus Christ. He paid the price. He died. He suffered. He rose again. I believe in him. One day, if you were to stand before God, and he were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? You would say, because I believe. I believe in Jesus. If you're there one day and you say, oh, because I'm a good person, he's going to pull the lever and you're going to go down, man. Because <laughs> it's not by your good works. None of us are good enough. I mean, the Bible even says, we're going to see it in Isaiah 64, 6, that the righteousness of man is filthy rags. That's like a woman's menstrual garment. The best a man can offer is, is filthy so, but when you place your faith in Jesus, you believe, then this is what this is all about. Isaiah is writing this so that people would get saved. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord would be like, you know, his saving hand. It's kind of like Jesus, right? Uh, you hear you, it's kind of interesting. You see the balance between like me believing, my responsibility, God revealing, how yeah, it's God's sovereignty. Who's, who's really saved? Not only that, you know, do you guys believe tonight? Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? If you don't, then tonight, my, 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 my prayer is that you would, you know, that you would believe. But not only that, now, Lord, use my life so that other people would believe. Because I'm thinking about these people, you know, the police officers, the city officials, you know, all the people that we get to talk to now in this whole thing. And that's the one, of course, I love them no matter what, but I want to be an instrument that they would get saved. Do you? Where you go and you work and, and, you know, you're going to school and you're going to, you know, the gym or wherever you end up going. Do you, don't you always have it in your heart? Lord, let me be a mouthpiece so that people could get saved, that they would believe. You don't have to be an eloquent evangelist. All you have to do is care. And all you have to do is be uh, bold enough and courageous enough to tell them about Jesus. That's all. You know, Henry and I, we used to coach back in the day in, in, in Duarte. And uh, we coached these 9 and 10-year-olds. And uh, the Lord just put this baseball team in our path and it was such a blessing they were all the leftovers no one else wanted them and so henry and i started coaching them and they won the championship man 19 and 2 i was a good coach i'm serious man (laughs) 
you know, I, I wasn't. But anyways, it was just the Lord. He, man, these little guys. I remember uh, Gabriel and, and Ruben and Oscar and uh, Nick and Brandon and all these kids. And I used to go in my pickup truck and I would drive around Duarte and pick them all up. And that was back when you could um, put them in the, in the, you know, that, in the truck like that. And then, you know, so um, I was talking to him the other day and, and I'm thinking about these kids. Now it's been 30 years. How are they doing? I was asking him, how are they doing? I wonder how Gabriel's doing. I wonder. And, you know, we're finding out that some of them are struggling. So we want to reach out to them. And he was able to come in contact with one. And, and we're going to, because we, I don't know, what happens is when God gets a hold of your heart, you care about the lost. Be careful that you don't just get so caught up in your own life that you lose the burden, you lose your eyes to evangelize. You know, you got to share Jesus because that's where it's at. Who has believed our report? You know, that's the big question. And, and then it goes on to talk about Jesus growing up. It says in verse 2, For he shall grow up before him. So Jesus will grow up before the Father like a, a tender plant and, and as a root out of dry ground. And so basically that means Jesus growing up. The circumstances weren't the best. But the Father was just there uh, the whole process watching Jesus grow up. But notice what Jesus' life was like growing up. It says he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. And so uh, apparently, I don't know, they say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But you know how nowadays people place a lot of stock into looks? Oh, they got their, you know, they're a pretty girl or they're a handsome guy or whatever. They got the look or they've got the clothing or they got the shape or whatever. And unfortunately, we live in a, in a demented world that esteems people that have like the right look. Whereas you and I know better than that, huh? You can have somebody who has the best looks and they could have zero, zero content to their character where on the other hand, you can have someone, and who, who says what's good looks or not? It doesn't matter. They might be whatever, uh, looking, you know, not, not like we would esteem or put on a magazine cover, but you start talking to them, and they're the most beautiful person you, you've ever met. And, and that's what, I don't know, Jesus, he probably wasn't, you know, the GQ10. He probably wasn't the way that we have all the pictures of him. He maybe wasn't all that great looking. He wasn't charismatic, apparently. Um, there was nothing that would draw us towards him. That was him growing up. So the Buddha says in verse 3 that he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so that might be in reference to him in ministry or him at the cross, but it also might be in reference to him just growing up, that he went through so much. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. So when it says we hid it as our faces from him, what that means is that they didn't want a fellowship with him. They didn't want that. So think about that. God came to earth and people did not want to be around him. And it's just crazy when you think about that. But look why he came. It says in verse uh, 4, but surely, this is not fan fantasy or fabricated. Uh, he surely, 
He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now, again, it's interesting. We're getting towards the cross. We're almost there. Jesus knows what you're going through. Whatever the heartache is, whatever the, the, the turmoil is, whatever the grief is, whatever the pain is, for, for a few reasons. Number one, because, you know, just, um, you know, generally speaking, he entered into humanity. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews how, how he was tempted just like us. He went through everything just like us. But I believe he also knows, because it's not just a general thing, but it's a personal thing. Because that when you're going through it, he draws near and he carries you. So this is him. He's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. But we esteemed him stricken. And basically what that means is that when he was arrested and then, you know, scourged and crucified, what that means is that we thought he deserved it. He deserved it. How dare he go against the religious leaders? How dare he heal people on the Sabbath day? You know, and then when they see him, you know, going through it, they're like, oh, yeah, God must uh you know, been mad at him because look at what he's going through. And so that's how they thought he deserves it, right? But it, he didn't deserve it. He was the only one who never sinned. He was completely pure, completely innocent. Think about that. It says right here, he was wounded for why? For, why? for our transgressions. He was bruised, or the Hebrew word means crushed, for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. You know, he went through that. And, you know, I don't know, like, the exact, like, way that the theology works. They call it soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. But, you know, like, for every sin we've ever committed, they were put on him. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So our iniquities, all the things that you've ever done wrong, past, present, future, they were all laid on him. He felt it. He, he bore that. And then he suffered the punishment for it. So that this is why he did what he did. He was wounded for our transgressions. That word right there, wounded, can also be translated pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Can I ask you guys a question? Some of you here, I mean, we're all, we're all, none of us are perfect. But do any of you here tonight have like a, a peace in your heart? Like, you know, some of you do, Right. You're like, you know what, Manny, I, 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 I have a rough life, but in my heart I have a peace. I have peace, the peace of God, because I have been given peace with God. I know I'm not perfect, but I know he loves me. I know that if I were to die today, I go to heaven. You have peace. How did you get that? It says right here, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. Some of you here, you've been through so much. Some people have been through so much. They've been, you know, molested. 
They've been beaten down. They've been belittled. People have gone through so much. But you almost wouldn't know it now because God has healed them. God has healed them. Huh. And that's what we see right here. It says, The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. That's how. You know, it's all Jesus. It's all him. It says, all we like sheep, and it says in verse 6, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so everyone is sin, you know. That's one thing you can you know, understand when you read the scriptures. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we end up going our own way. You know, that's the world that we live in today. Huh? They're doing their own thing. You know, the, the lawmakers, uh, the movie makers. You know, who makes the decision to put, you know, the, the hero in the Buzz Lightyear movie, make her gay or lesbian and, you know, to, to, to whatever, kiss and have kids with another lesbian. I don't even explain how that happens. The next thing you know, they've been married for 40 years. Who makes the decision for that to happen? Now, you guys know we, we love everyone, but there is an agenda now, right, on these guys, whoever it is, someone up there, some committee up there, someone up there. Because there was a pressure. Disney didn't have that scene in the movie at, at first, but then they got pressured and Disney capitulated and now it's in the movie. W- why is that? Because they don't believe that, that there's a God, that they're going to have to stand before one day and give an account. They don't know this is God's word. When God came, when Jesus came, Jesus said, every jot, every tittle will come to pass, that the scriptures can't be broken so when you go in, sometimes, I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but every once in a while, it's been a while, we'll play a game at home. You know, we'll play uh, whatever, sorry, or Monopoly, or cards, or whatever. Have you guys ever done it where, like, when you're playing a game, you change the rules <laughs> so that you win? And it's like, wait a minute, you can't do that. I mean, it says right here, and you, know, you look at the box, and you look at the things, and this is how you're supposed to do it. You've got to go by the book. But, you know, I mean, sometimes it's just whoever's the loudest and whoever's the strongest and whoever, whatever, and people make up their own rules. Well, that's a game, and um, I would never do that, but, you know. (laughs) Um, That's what people are doing. God said, no, no, I, I want a dad, and I want a mom, and I want my sons, and I want my daughters, and when there's a boy... I want the dads to teach him how to be a boy. And when there's a girl, I want the moms to teach her how to be a, a young lady. And, and, and just the, the way that God has created us. But now, I've always told you guys this, the family is a fabric of society. And so they're attacking the very, the very fabric of who we are. Don't be mean to people. Don't belittle people. You know, don't um, be weird like an obnoxious Christian, but don't capitulate to them. You know, don't feed that. I mean, even recently I was reading about this Christian book 
uh, company, Eerdmans, and they had put out a lot of good books, but now they're giving into that whole agenda as well. Why? Because it says right here that people go their own way. We can't go our own way. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is destruction. Right here, it says right here, all of us here, we like sheep, we've gone astray, everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on, a, on him the iniquity of us all. If any of these guys, I mean, I doubt it if they would hear, ever hear this Bible study, but if they ever did and they're like, yeah, that guy's talking about me, I could tell that person, hey, whoever you are, doesn't matter what you've done, that, that iniquity, Jesus paid the price and you can be forgiven if you humble yourself, admit you're not God and you give your life to him. He died for you. I mean, who, who else Who else is the most influential person who's ever lived? No one but Jesus. And he did his thing through love. It wasn't violence like Muhammad. No, it was just love. And so we go on right here in verse 7. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb, where? To the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so this right here is in reference to how Jesus, think about it, man, so humble, the, the Lamb of God who takes away our sins of the world. And as a sheep goes before its shears, it, it doesn't you know, freak out because it trusts the shepherd, you know? And that's what Jesus did. He didn't defend himself. He didn't try to get out of it. Uh, he did pray, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, thy will be done. And it was as simple as that. And so today, um, we went over all those verses last in the last couple of weeks. Today, we dive into verse 8, and we begin uh, to break it down a little more. It says in verse 8 that he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. And so he was taken from prison. If you go to Israel, I've gone a couple of times. The first time I went, they took us to the, the place that Jesus was. The little, it's like a hole. It's a cement hole where he was um, before they took him in the morning to go and stand before the Sanhedrin and, you know, supposedly a trial, then eventually he would go before Pilate and others. And so right here it says that he was taken from prison and from judgment who will declare his generation. And so you can picture Jesus taken up from jail. Some of you guys have been in that situation. Any of you guys ever been in a holding cell? All right, and they take you out. Okay, you got to go stand before the judge. That's what happened to Jesus. And so he was taken from there. It was a mockery of a trial, completely unjust and illegal. The Sanhedrin consisted of 70 council members. And they're kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court, uh, led by the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. And they made their judgment against Jesus. And Pontius Pilate did as well, releasing him to be crucified. And so verse 8, he was taken up from prison, from judgment. But here's another question. Here's another question. And who will declare his generation? So the first question here is, who has believed our report? And you guys have, right? The second question is, who will declare? Who will be bold enough 
to speak out? Who is going to share? You know, the, it, it might be in reference, it's interesting, a couple of interpretations here. It might be in reference to, to, to us, the church, or all future generations from the cross. Will we be bold enough to tell it is about Jesus? And I want to I encourage you guys in something. I wanted to say this real quick. You know, you don't have to be a super Christian. You don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to know, like, 57 scriptures. All you have to do is tell your friend that's going through a hard time, hey, Jesus loves you. That's all you have to do. And that might be all they need to hear to be saved. So I want to encourage you guys in that. You know, don't commit the sin of silence. You know, as a chaplain, they tell me, you can't pray in the name of Jesus, but I do it anyways. (laughs) Because I know there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And all they need to do is hear the name of Jesus and there's hope. So the question is, who will declare? To declare something is to say it solemnly and formally to announce and tell others about this saving and suffering servant. Will I tell others about him, about his generation, about the regeneration found in Christ? Will you... um, That's probably what this is in reference to. And so it says right here, he was taken from prison, from judgment. Who will declare his generation? For he was, and it says right here, cut off from the land of the living. So as we've gone through all these verses, this is the first time that it explicitly says he died. The others pretty much imply it, but here it says that he was cut off from the land of the of the living. And so we read something similar in Daniel chapter 9 in verse 26. Remember the 70 week of Daniel, that amazing prophecy. And it says, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. But it says there in Daniel, but not for himself. And so you see it uh, throughout the scriptures, how one day the Savior would come and die, but not for himself. He would die for you. He would die for me. Does that hit home for you? Does that encourage you to think that someone died for you? I mean, if a person died for you, if a person died for you, you know, someone's going to shoot you and they just step in front of that bullet. They took a bullet for you and they died for you. Or whatever, you can think of different scenarios. Wouldn't you feel grateful? Wouldn't you feel indebted to them? Well, that's what the Lord has done for us. He has died. It says, for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. And we're going to see it you know, five times in going through a section right here, how he just talks over and over again about how God died for our transgressions, for our iniquity, uh, for our, our sin. If you're interested, some of you guys might be interested in this, others probably not. It's called the vicarious atonement. Vicarious atonement, substitutionary atonement. How he died in our place. You know, he paid the price that we could never pay. Because this is how it works, okay? When we sin, we sin against an infinite God, and therefore the penalty is an infinite penalty. None of us could ever pay that. That's why it had to be God 
to die for us because he paid an infinite price. You see what I'm saying? So that's what he did for us. And in the process, he suffered. You know, my wife and I, my family, actually, we're getting ready to go. I'm blessed to keep this in prayer. I'm going to do a wedding for my uncle, Mike. So when my dad passed away in 2020, uh, I was able to go up and, and kind of get to know the family a little bit. I, I really hadn't known them too well. And I was talking to my Uncle Mike, and then, you know, it was kind of cool because later on he said, hey, I'm going to be getting married. Will you do the wedding for us? Now, um, I don't think he's a Christian. And so it's kind of cool. It's a neat opportunity and just to be able to share with the whole family, right? And so um, he invited us up. He said, I got it, I got it squared away for you. But, but the thing about it is I'm thinking, man, it's kind of expensive to go up there and, you know, two nights in a hotel room. I don't know. It's about for two rooms. I think it's going to end up being like $500. But it's kind of cool because he sent me a text message and he said it's paid for. Paid for. And so maybe he is saved. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> All I know is that it's kind of cool when we show up. When we show up, it's paid for. One day when, you, when you're there and you're dying, uh, we got to get ready for that. I mean, I kind of want to die in my sleep, you know. I, I think that would be nice. But you just never know. You might get, you know, you might get shot. You might get in a car accident. It might be you on the hospital bed. And you're there and you're, you're facing death. You don't have to worry because you know when I show up, it's paid for. That's what the Lord has done. I mean, this is the gospel. It's the good news. That's why the Jews who were very religious, they, they stumbled over it. They're like, no way. The religious people think, no, you got to be a good person and sacraments and whatever it might be. And then the, the Greeks, they're very intellectual. They said, oh, that's foolish. That's foolish. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God unto salvation, huh? I, I, it's so cool, man, because when someone gets saved, it's so cool because God comes into your life. You know, I know I could talk to my wife. I could talk to Henry. I could talk to, you know, Ariana, Maria, Jesse. I could talk to all of you guys, Henry. And you, you can tell me how it was before you were saved and how it was now, how it is now. Huh? There's, there's God has come into your life. So it's so cool when you see that God has actually saved us. And so we read right here, who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken and says, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And so right here, we know Jesus died between two criminals. Uh, More than likely, they were violent criminals because the Bible says they were robbers. Not just thieves, they were robbers. And so there's no doubt they were violent, maybe even murderers. It says in Matthew 27, 38, then two robbers were crucified with them on the right and another on the left. And so it's interesting, they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. And so usually when someone was crucified, they would leave him on the cross, the vultures would eat him, or they would throw him in a mass grave where the dogs would eat him. I mean, that's usually what would happen to someone who was crucified that may have been what happened to the other two robbers. 
But Jesus was different. It says right here that there would be this connection with a rich man. And that's exactly what happened in Matthew 27, 57 through 60. It says, now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, laid it in his new tomb when he had cut out the, out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Isn't it interesting how this individual who would die not for himself, die for our transgressions, there would be this connection with the wicked, the robbers who would die on the side, and there'd be this connection with the rich man. And if you go to Israel today, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful garden the garden tomb. And it is just, there's no doubt about it. Whoever owned this thing, he was a rich man. And that's what the Bible says. It's exactly what it says. And it's interesting what it says though in verse nine, it says that they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. It says because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And I'll bet you almost anything when they came and they asked for the body of Jesus, Pilate let them have his body because he wasn't, Jesus wasn't like the violent criminals, the violent robbers. And it says right here, there was no deceit in his mouth. Because when Pilate was talking with Jesus, imagine the words of the Lord and he knew. So we read in verse 10, yet it, yet it pleased the Lord to, to bruise him. Imagine that it pleased the father to crush his son he has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Imagine that. I, I remember one time I had a dream that my son died and uh, it was a horrible dream. I remember I was just driving on the, on the road and my son, I don't know how I got this visual, but he had just been, boom, he just fell on the street. And I just remember, um, in my dream, I remember weeping, just this pain that was, like this lady said, I didn't know such a pain existed. I mean, just weeping. I remember I woke up, and I was just drenched with tears, and so I went into his room, and I woke him up, wake up. I wanted to make sure he was still alive, you know. <laughs> but, I, I, you know, just to think your son, your son, your perfect son dying. But right here it says that it pleased the Lord to, to bruise him, to crush him. Why? Because, you know, what God did in redeeming us and one day us, you know, his son would rise, um, we're going to see that later. It's just a beautiful thing because he sees what ends up happening. You know, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days. Now, I want to tell you guys something. Uh, in one sense, verse 8 is the death. Verse 9 is the burial. And verse 10 is the resurrection. And it's interesting when you read that, huh? It pleased the Lord to bruise him, to put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He, why, why would the father be happy? Because he'd rise from the dead. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. There it is. That's the resurrection. 
and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Now, verse 10, it says, he shall see his seed. Now, some people say, wait a minute, Jesus, uh, we're not Jesus' kids. We're his brothers and his sisters. But it's interesting when you read the Gospel of John, chapter 21, I think it's in verse 5, when Jesus goes and he calls the disciples who are fishing, you know what he calls them? Children. Children. So in one sense, because he's God, we're his children, we're his seed, we're his, we're his descendants. It's interesting, the same Hebrew word is used in addressing Abraham when it says, uh, after Abraham believed, it says, uh, look up at the sky, Abraham, and the stars, and look at the sand, all the grains. So shall your descendants be. Same Hebrew word, translated seed right here. He's going to see one day. He's going to trip, you know, he's going to see Rudy. He's going to see Richard. You know, he's going to see Johan. He's, it's amazing. And that's going to be where it's all worth it. It says right here, uh, verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and, and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. And so it's interesting. Verse 11, it sp- speaks of his labor. You know, his, his will was to do the work of the father and to finish that work. And, and then also it speaks of his knowledge by his knowledge and most people believe what that's talking about is how God knows you and we know him. John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they might know you. And so it's this relationship that we have with God. He shall justify. The word justify, you know what it means? Justify is a theological term and it means to declare righteous, a legal declaration of righteousness in the sight of God. So you can say whatever you want right here, right? But then when you go before the judge, the big question is, will it stand in the court of law? Is it really you know, legal? And that's what Jesus does. He justifies us. A legal declaration of righteousness to the point where some people will say it this way, justification means it's just as if you'd never sinned. Imagine that. And so... We end the same way we started. The, 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 some people will tell you that par, part of the whole thing is just to tell you one day Jesus is going to be exalted. And that's kind of how it ends. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Here in verse 12, we see that Jesus will therefore be again exalted. And it kind of gives the picture of someone who goes to war. And when you go to war, you get the spoils, so to speak, of your enemy. So uh, there's different views on this. Um, Right here where it says, I will divide him a portion with the great and he should divide the spoil with the strong. It could be in reference to how Jesus gets exalted and he gets his inheritance. He gets all the galaxies. He inherits everything. And we are joint heirs with him. So it could be that. But I think there's another view that's better. Where it says, uh, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. 
the great and the strong might be in reference to the Father and the Spirit. And the spoils are us. Because the spoils, we used to belong to who? The devil. And so now we're getting, Jesus is getting us. And so it's so cool when you see even the Trinity there. And so he was numbered. This is why with the transgressors, he bore the sins of many. And he made intercession for the transgressors. Um, intercession. Uh, three things. Let me just say it real quick. Number one, um, just the whole cross. How he is the mediator. And he died for us. Number two, what were the first words on the cross when Jesus was on the cross? Do you remember what he said? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. They know not what they do. That's intercession. Imagine praying that. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But then the third thing, you guys know this, that he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. Even now, in one sense, he's praying for us. That's how good he is. You know, when you look at the gospel, what, what God has done for us, how he died for us, you know, to me, I'm like, Lord, if you died for me, why am I struggling to live for you? I pray that in light of this, that you would have peace, that you would have healing, that you would know, today I was reading in the Bible, how I'm accepted in the beloved. I, I'm accepted. And that we would then declare his you know we would we would go out and we would share this with others you don't have to be an evangelist you don't have to be perfect all you have to do is have a heart that that cares lord i i care second corinthians five twenty one. it says god made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of god god treated jesus as if he lived our life and he will treat you as if you lived his now, I don't know about you, but to me, that sounds like a pretty good deal. <laughs> and so let's enjoy this.